Well, as I've mentioned, the book of Galatians is Paul's defense of the gospel of grace. And it's organized in three distinct parts. Now, the first part of the book is Paul's personal defense of the gospel of grace because legalists had come into Galatia and said that Paul didn't know the true gospel. So he spent the first couple of chapters of the book of Galatians demonstrating that the early church received the very gospel and the ministry that Paul had preached and the ministry that Paul had lived. Uh, his gospel was not at all rejected by the early church or the early church leaders. It was received, it was confirmed, and it was affirmed. So that's his personal argument in the first couple chapters of the book. Uh, the legalists had also said that the gospel that Paul was preaching would lead to a sort of life that was out of control. That if people really believed the gospel of grace as Paul preached it, then they would just do whatever they wanted to do. And they would, they would live lives that were out of line with the truth of God's word. And so in the last two chapters of Galatians, Paul addressed that argument with an ethical argument. He will highlight for us in chapter 5 and 6 the beautiful brand of life that the gospel is meant to produce in us. It's, it's not a life that is out of control. It's not a life that is spent on the passions of the flesh. It's a life that is submitted to the very spirit of God, which is true freedom. But in the middle section of the letter, Paul has to deal with their theological argument. You see, the legalists thought that they had the Bible on their side. Uh, they were going back to the Levitical code. They were going back to the law of Moses, and they were saying, look it, it's right here in the word. It's right here in the Bible. There's no way that Paul's gospel of grace without works, without the law, is a valid message. We have the Bible on our side. And in this middle section, chapter three and four of the book of Galatians, uh, Paul works hard to demonstrate that he has the actual biblical case for the gospel of grace. He demonstrates that it wasn't as if God was saving people by works for so many years and then Jesus came and now he's changing it up. No, he demonstrates that it's always been by faith in the simple promise that God has made, going all the way back to the original promise that he made to Abraham, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And the Bible says when Abraham believed that from God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So Paul demonstrates that he's the one actually who has the Bible on his side. But Paul, in this middle section that we're still in, making his theological argument, which he's not done with, does not merely come across as a dry theologian with argument after argument. He's a loving pastor who wants so badly for the people that he's ministering to in Galatia to get it, to understand where he's coming from. And what we have here in this passage that we're about to read this morning is not Paul's theological argument, but he takes a break for a moment and he makes a personal appeal with these Galatians. Uh, only twice in these 13 verses that we're going to study this morning does Paul even refer to the false teachers. He uses the word they two times. 
But over 40 times, Paul uses the word I or me or you and yours. He's conversing with these Galatians. He's reasoning with these Galatians. He's sharing his heart with these Galatians. He's sharing his fears with these Galatians about what might have happened to them. And all throughout this personal appeal, it seems clear that Paul wants them to stay firm in the gospel of grace. And what I hope to show today is that he wants us to stay simple in our relationship with God as our Father, free in Christ, and focused on Christ being formed in us. So let's read our first handful of verses, starting in verse 8 all the way through verse 11, if you'd follow along with me. Paul said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Okay, this first little paragraph from Paul in this personal appeal, I think it shows us that Paul, and of course this is God's heart, God wants us to stay simple in our relationship with him. What I mean is that God doesn't want us to turn our relationship with him into a complex issue, a complex affair, but As we talked about last week from Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7, he wants us desperately to see him and relate to him as our Father in heaven. As we saw in verse 6 of chapter 4, he even sends his Spirit to live inside of us so that the Spirit within us would cry out back to the Father, Abba, Father, you're my Father. He wants us to experience him in that beautiful, fatherly So what Paul is saying here in this paragraph to the Galatians is, God is your father. You are now, if you're under the blood of Jesus, in a relationship with him. Don't add the legal code of the Old Testament or any other legal code. You don't need to keep it simple before God. Now, that's the overview of the paragraph that we just read, but I want you to notice a few of the things that Paul thought about the Galatians. Uh, First of all, he talks about their past in verse 8. Did you notice it there? He said, before you guys knew God, you were enslaved to those who were by nature not gods. Now, the Galatians were not steeped in Judaism before they came to Christ. They were Gentiles. They were far from Israel in the region of Galatia. Uh, They would have worshiped gods like Zeus or gods like Hermes. That's what Paul is alluding to. He's saying, back in your old life, uh, you were part of that mythology. You were part of that false, these false systems of worship. But then he says this fascinating thing. He says, You guys were enslaved to all those false gods, but now you want to go back to slavery, to those elementary and worthless principles of 
the world. You're, you're trying to become enslaved to those things once again. You'd almost expect then that the next thing that Paul would say was, because I'm hearing that some of you want to worship Zeus again, or that some of you want to worship Hermes again, but that's not what he says. He says in verse 10, you are observing features of Judaism that are rooted in the Old Testament law. You're observing days, like the weekly Sabbath. You're observing the monthly new moon festival. You're observing the seasonal festivals like Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or Pentecost. And you're even inclined to keep the sabbatical and jubilee years. That's what he alludes to, the days, the months, the seasons, and the years. These are all straight from the Old Testament ceremonial law. And when Paul witnessed that, their tendency to run towards those aspects of Judaism, he's saying it's like you're going back to the weak and worthless and elementary principles that God rescued you from in the first place. Zeus, Hermes, dead religion, false gods. You Galatians, Paul is saying, are being enslaved to all that again by placing yourself under the law that you do not need to place yourself under. In short, what the Galatians were doing, hear me now, they were trading sonship for slavery. They were trading sonship for slavery. And I think if we are honest about it, this version of legalism that the Galatians were submitting to, it is a pervasive and significant problem for people who are sensitive to God. You know, you love God. You want to please God. You want to be a blessing to God. You want to honor God with your life. But sometimes that desire can cause you to slip into a works-based relationship with him. And Paul calls that slavery to the elementary principles of the world. It's just a very easy thing for God-fearing, God-loving Christian people to enter into. Uh, Tim Keller wrote about this passage and said, the idolatry and slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it's less obvious. The irreligious person knows he's far away from God, I would add, usually, but the religious person does not. Uh, Keller went on to utilize, as he often does, the example of the two brothers in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In that story, it was the immoral and sinful prodigal who, at the end of the story, enjoyed his father. He was enjoying a relationship with his dad. But it was the moral son who, at the end of the story, distanced himself from his father. And why was that? Well, the reason was because what he preferred, what he wanted, was a wage, law, servant relationship with his father, as opposed to a grace, love, acceptance, and 
faith-based relationship with his father. He preferred, as I said earlier, slavery over sonship, servitude over sonship. And Paul's point is clear. God wants us to remember that we are sons and daughters of God if we're covered in the blood of Jesus. Now the key to all this is to always remember who you actually are. That's why at the end of the teaching last week, I said one of the things we need to do is to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Uh, Paul said it this way in verse nine. If you look at the little middle verse of that paragraph I've read today, he said, but now you Galatians, uh, now that you have come to know God, or rather, or, or maybe more importantly, to be known by God, okay? This is the very thing that they'd forgotten. They'd forgotten that they knew God. They'd forgotten that they were known by God. And Paul is trying to remind them of that fact, trying to remind them of that reality. So if you've trusted in Jesus, uh, stay current in the simple truth that God is your father. Don't complexify your relationship with him. You're not earning anything. You're not working for anything. Don't let your Christian life devolve into anything less than a relationship with your father in heaven and a response to his fathering hand and ministry in your life. Christ shed his blood to win that position for you. So cherish it and don't allow external forms of Christianity to take place of the simple and joyful communion that you have with the living God. Uh, to me in the Old Testament, Ruth is a great example of this kind of consciousness of God as father. Uh, Ruth was not an Israelite woman, she was a Moabite woman. Um, and she was not from Israel. She was from and lived in Moab, grew up in Moab. But she'd come to hear about the God of Israel through a marriage to an Israelite man. And when he died along with her father-in-law, she was left with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so they went back into Israel. And the whole time that they were there, throughout her whole story, it seems obvious that Ruth just had a simple relationship with God. She believed that God would be her provider, that God would be her protector, that God was her father, that God was her defender. She just knew these things about God, despite her circumstances, despite what she was facing. I mean, even despite her mentor's lack of faith, Naomi comes back into the land and she's like, I am a bitter, lost soul and a bitter, lost person. God has taken everything away from me, even though she didn't realize that God was busily putting her into the very line of Christ himself and going to prosper her life abundantly. Uh, Ruth witnessed all of that, but she just remained constant in the understanding, God is my father, he will watch over my life. All right, so that's the first thing I think that Paul is urging these Galatians and that the spirit is urging us into, keep it simple, stay simple, God is your father. Okay, let's read paragraph number two today, uh, starting in verse 12. Paul goes on and he says, brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? All right, this second paragraph that we just read together, I think it shows us that that Paul wanted the Galatians and God wants us to stay free. In other words, he wants us to stay firmly entrenched in the Christian liberty that God won for us. It's an exhortation to be like Paul was, steeped in Christian liberty, steeped in Christian freedom. Now, the word freedom is a tough word to define these days because it's particularly sensitive to its context. Um, You know, Paul is talking about it in relationship to God, Uh, But many want to talk about it in relationship maybe to institutions or in relationship to political entities or even in relationship to biological design, as in nothing can restrict me, I'm free. But that's not the freedom that Paul is alluding to here or that I'm talking about. To Paul, we should remain free from a works-based relationship with God. We should stay free from legalism. Now, as we've been going through the book of Galatians, you know, we've been thinking about it, and you know, I think uh, the job of a, of a Bible teacher is fairly straightforward. You're wanting to explain the passage, uh, what it meant to the original hearers. You're trying to observe the text, and then you're trying to interpret the text, try to help people understand the, the meaning to, to kind of grasp it for your own life, and then to apply the passage into our lives uh, today. And we've been doing that as we've been going through the book of Galatians, and there have been lots of applications. I've been closing some of my sermons with three or four or five applications. Here's how we can take this home in our lives today. So it might surprise you, because we've been applying Galatians so much up to this point, that verse 12 is the first time in the whole book of Galatians that Paul tells the Galatians to do anything. So first imperative of the whole book of Galatians. He waits all the way until chapter 4, verse 12, to give them an exhortation. And what is it that Paul wanted them to do? What is it that Paul wants us to do, that God wants us to do? Well, he says, become as I am. Now, in the context, this is Paul saying, that he has agonized over the Galatian insistence on entering into a works-based relationship with God and that he had rejected that and he was asking them to become like he was, free in Christ before God. And as he appealed to them, he was basically showing them, I'm a Jewish man who when I came to visit you, I lived like a Gentile in your midst. That's how free I am in Jesus. So I am clearly free from the law. You should not be encumbered by it. All right, so in thinking about this second paragraph today, I think the way I want to approach it is as a textbook on how to stay free in Christian liberty. And the first step is 
obvious. It's that you have to remain grace-oriented just like Paul was. I mean, he was convinced that, the, that a law-free approach to the Christian life was the right approach to the Christian life. Paul didn't feel he could earn anything in God's sight. His view of God, his view of human brokenness, his view of his own sin were way too high for him to think that he could do anything to merit God's favor. It had to be deposited into his account. It had to be imputed to him. It had to be given to him. He clung to the cross of Jesus and he applied Christ's freedom to the way that he lived. And the Galatians knew this about Paul. You know, they watched when this ex-Pharisee came into town and befriended non-Jewish people, ate non-Jewish food, and adopted non-Jewish cultural practices. This was a really vulnerable thing for Paul to do. I think even modern church leaders sometimes are, are afraid to talk about their hobbies or their interests because a mere mention of them can kind of produce the closet legalists coming up to them, like, how dare you, how could you ever, you know, kind of things. But Paul was a grace-oriented man, and he exemplified that grace by not, by not yielding for even a second to the legalistic branch of the Galatian church. But a second thing that you see about this freedom in Christ is that uh, in order to keep it, you have to be culturally flexible. Notice what Paul said in verse 12. He said, become as I am because I also have become as you are. I've kind of already been talking about this. Uh, Paul had become like these Gentiles even though he was a Jew. He was, in other words, culturally flexible where the Bible allowed it, of course, willing to become like the Galatians in order to reach the Galatians. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had our uh, first agape night of the year, our Wednesday, monthly Wednesday night gathering of uh, prayer, worship, little time in the word, and fellowship together. And uh, the kids team relayed this beautiful story to me of something that happened downstairs. There's a little family of kids who are getting ready to move to Africa, and uh, they brought that up as a prayer request. And so Pastor Matt asked the children, he said, hey, let's pray for them, and brought the kids up on the stage. And then he said, would any of you kids like to join me in praying for them? Kind of thinking that they'd be shy and they wouldn't want to do it. But then all these kids started raising their hand, like, we want to pray. So they came up on the platform and they're praying these sweet and beautiful prayers. And then one of them began praying specifically that uh, on the journey to Africa that the traffic would not be bad. <laughs> and apparently that prayer just caught on like wildfire, you know, and all the other kids were echoing that prayer. I, I think they've all witnessed what bad traffic does to their parents, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta lift this one up to the Lord. So cute, so sweet, but in the minds of these children, you know, all journeys are exactly the same, you know? If you've traveled to grandma's house, then you know what it's like to travel to Africa. <laughs> but obviously the two journeys couldn't be more different unless, of course, your grandma lives in Africa. And I like this because I think it illustrates the way we often think about Christianity. We think it has to look the same way everywhere, 
at all times for all people. But any time that we tie the gospel to the specifics of any culture or custom, what we've done is we've removed it from other cultures and other customs. That's something that Jesus and Paul were not willing to do. The gospel has a cultural flexibility to it. It goes into any culture, and there's some parts of it it rebukes, and there's some parts of it that it affirms in any society on earth. It can work, in other words, anywhere, and Christians who want to stay free will learn to adapt to their culture in godly and appropriate ways, of course. Okay, but another thing here, a third thing about this freedom in Christ is that we have to be focused on the inner person, not, not outer performance, but the inner person, the, the matter of the heart. Um, and the reason I'm saying this is because Paul said that when he came to, a, to Galatia for the first time, uh, he had some type of bodily ailment. That's how he describes it there in verse 13. And of course, this has led scholars and pastors and Christians uh, to go on a race to try to figure out what specific bodily ailment Paul had. And uh, some people think it had to do with his eyes because in a few verses he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me, though that could have just been an expression, uh, something similar to you would have given me the shirt off your backs, you know, kind of thing. Uh, some people think he had malaria because the region near Galatia was infested with mosquitoes or something like that. Look, I, I don't know what bodily ailment Paul had. I really feel that if he wanted us to know that information, he would have thrown it in there. I think he's trying to say bodily ailment just to help us be like, okay, say no more. <laughs> But whatever he had, uh, the important thing that Paul noticed is that the Galatians received him when he was in that condition. Apparently, whatever he had was severe enough to where they could have been tempted, according to Paul, to scorn or despise him. But instead, he says, it's like you received me like I was an angel from God or like I was Christ himself, which is how you should receive an apostle with an ap apostolic word. What this means is that the Galatians were not superficial about Paul. They were not superficial about their minister. They weren't looking for uh, the handsome or the healthy or the smooth. They weren't into appearance, but they were into the truth, at least when he first arrived. He was a messenger of Jesus. He was preaching Christ's truth. So even though his condition was a trial for them, they received him like they would have received Jesus. Look, I think we get into trouble when we look for or are attracted to style over substance. And you can see this in modern Christianity in many ways, the types of leaders that people are sometimes drawn to uh, it's, there's, an, there's an outward gloss, which I just don't prefer, I just don't like. Outward appearance lends itself to legalism because legalism is all about appearances. But the gospel is about the inner matters of the heart, changing someone from within. And if we value that, we can stay free. All right, so if you're part of this church because of how handsome I am, uh, you should look for another church. It's only going downhill from here. 
All right, but the last thing before I wrap up the teaching by reading the last paragraph that I think we can do to stay free in Christ is by being receptive to the truth. Now, Paul was shocked at how quickly these Galatians had changed their minds about him. They'd gone from this sacrificial love towards Paul, you know, you'd be willing to gouge out your eyes for me, into becoming uh, or seeing Paul as their enemy uh, in no time at all. And how did he become their enemy? Well, he says in verse 16, by telling them the truth. And Paul was confused by this reality. He told them the truth. The legalists had lied to them, and the Galatians were upset at Paul. (laughs) Uh, How quickly these believers had soured on the truth of the gospel. They didn't like Paul anymore because he wasn't affirming their theological whims. And once we're no longer receptive to the truth, but we get a narrow grid that is extra biblical, we're prime candidates to slip into legalism because our law-prone hearts need constant course correction lest we slip from Christ. But once we're no longer receptive to course correction, we're doomed. All right, so those are some ways to stay free. But let's read our last paragraph. It says, they make much of you, verse 17, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, so we've thought today about how God wants us to stay simple in our relationship with him as our father, and that he wants us to stay free in Christian liberty and not uh, glob onto legalism. But this third paragraph tells us that God wants us to stay focused on the ultimate goal of having Christ formed within us. Not a fake outward appearance, but a true inward reality. And to make this point, uh, Paul was really clear about the difference between him and the false teachers who had come to Galatia. And when the false teachers came to the Galatians, they made a huge deal about the Galatians. They fussed over the Galatians. They made it all about the Galatians uh, so that the Galatians would be cut off, Paul says, from everyone else. When that happened, the false teachers knew that with a wall of division up, the Galatians would in turn make much of the false teachers. Now many false teachers do this today. They make a big deal about their listeners so they can shut them off from other voices so that their platform becomes the celebrated platform. Um, I don't know what it is, but I've always been instinctively cautious about messengers who seek to alienate me from other good Christians. You know, don't listen to that preacher. Don't read that author. Don't attend that meeting. Don't go outside your tribe. They're not balanced enough. But I've always had a resistance to that message, uh, partly because I've been so edified and encouraged by the books and teachings from people outside of my stream. 
I'm not talking about people outside of Orthodox Christianity. I'm talking about people inside of Orthodox Christianity with whom I'm in disagreement about secondary or tertiary issues. And I want you to remember this. When you're listening to Christian pastors or teachers or podcasters, if they're trying to separate you from other orthodox and godly strains of Christianity, I think you need to be wary. There's often a mixed motive in doing so. Okay, Paul, however, he was not like that. He didn't want to separate the Galatians unto himself. His whole deal was parental. That's what he says. He says, I make much of you guys, verse 18, for a good purpose. He says, with mother-like labor, I've been working to see Christ formed in you. In other words, for Paul, it wasn't about a personal platform. It was about seeing transformation happen in the lives of the Galatian people. That's what he wanted more than anything. And that phrase, Christ formed in you, if you're an underliner, you need to underline that one in your Bible because that line, that phrase, that's the essence of the true, free-from-legalism Christian life. It's a phrase that depicts God working within us as his children to reform us into the image of his only begotten son. It's a phrase that indicates a slow and steady and faithful process of God transforming us as we avail ourselves to him to become more like Jesus, truly from the inside out. It's not fake, it's not acting, it's not just a WWJD, like I'll try it in this moment kind of moment kind of thing, it's a true inner transformation. It's not a legalistic front, it's true change from the inside out. And we have to keep this as our main focus as Christians. When we do, we throw ourselves into the study of Christ, we yield to the Spirit, and we spend time with the Father. And like a cucumber slowly being turned into a pickle as it soaks in the brine, we are transformed to become like Jesus as we soak in our relationship with him. But we have to keep that goal as our main focus. The second we drift from it, we will settle for legalism as a cheap replacement. We have to keep our focus on being transformed into Christ's image. But it's our nature as human beings to lose focus. I read recently that uh, studies have been done that the average knowledge worker checks their email or their instant messaging that they use in, our, in inner office communication once every six minutes. Can you imagine that? Like you're, not even, you're never focused, you know, if, if in that scenario. I heard another story about the company Stitch Fix. I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they got their start by uh, appealing mostly to women or exclusively to women at first, uh, saying, we'll hook you up with a personal stylist. They'll learn a little bit about you, and then they'll pick out clothes for you, and they'll send them to you. You try them on. You keep what you want, you know, that kind of thing. And they grew like crazy, and then they lost their focus, and they thought to themselves, you know what, we're gonna branch out, we're gonna expand, we're gonna, we're gonna pitch to men, and we're gonna pitch to children. What they didn't know is that most men wear the same clothes for like 40 years. 
and that children are just burning through clothes like they're on fire, you know? It's like, it just didn't work, and they began losing all this money. They had to lay off 20% of their sales, or 20% of their staff. They had to close all these huge warehouses that they'd built. It was all because they lost focus. We have to keep our focus, is what I'm trying to say, on the most important thing, seeing Christ formed in us. Now, the book of Nehemiah, to me, is a book that is all about focus. Nehemiah, he knew he had a job to do. He, he set his sights on revival, but for revival to happen, he knew he needed to get funding to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Then he needed to get permission to go to Jerusalem and lead the effort. Then he needed to cast the vision to the people of Jerusalem. Then he needed to rally everyone's energies and efforts time and time again. He had to defend them against attacks and insults that would come from the left and right. There were so many things that Nehemiah had to do, but he accomplished them because he kept his focus where it needed to be. I want to see renewal among God's people, and these are the steps I have to go through to get there. So keep your eyes on where it needs to be to let Christ be formed in you. And that's what Paul wanted. That's what God wants for us, to keep it simple, to stay free in Christ, and to remain focused on God's mission to form Christ in us.